Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're picking up where we left off in our introduction last week, just covering verses 1 and 2. Today we'll focus primarily on verse 2. But we're still sort of setting the stage. We're looking at the context um, of the author as well as the context of the um, original audience. And I'll explain that in a moment, but just to remind you of where we were, we, we started, if you follow along in your outline, and this outline is exactly the same as last time, I just added part two as well <laughs> to it. Um, same questions, same, same uh, uh, blanks to fill in. But if you weren't here, here's, here's where we went. We had the, that this was a writing from prison. Paul is writing from prison. Um, and you don't get that from the first half of verse 1, but you do get that as you look at the rest of the, the text. You know that he is, he is um, in prison and that he's using this time to witness to the whole imperial guard, and he's successfully doing so. And the, uh, the thing we focused on with that is, is that this is a letter filled with joy and rejoicing and fellowship and gospel proclamation and yet he's talking about all of these things from the context of prison. He's in chains. And so our circumstances don't determine our joy, not the Christian joy, right? It's much deeper than our circumstances. And so we shouldn't just consider these exhortations and encouragements from Paul as shallow platitudes that we can safely ignore. No, they're, they're deep. They come from a place of deep hardship, in fact, they come from the midst of a time and a season of hardship. And so it's a remarkable letter for us to consider. Uh, secondly, we said he was writing to the Philippians. That's obvious, right? It's the name of the letter. He's writing to them. And, and the context uh, in which uh, what we focused on was we, moved, we looked back at Acts chapter 16. We considered how this Philippian church came about. And I'd encourage you to, to read that again, to consider the background and the stories, the lives of those who are gathered in this church as this letter is being read to them. Right? It's a hodgepodge of people and different life experiences, um, but people who need to hear these exhortations and encouragement. We also focus on the fact that they are friends. They are dear, beloved saints. Right? Paul, Paul has a wonderful, loving, affectionate, intimate relationship with them. And so he doesn't focus on his apostolic authority. He doesn't have to emphasize any argument. In fact, you don't really have a, a lengthy theological argument, which we'll kind of consider today. But in this letter, he, he'll state exhortations and then move on. He expects the people to receive it as the word of the Lord, to trust Paul's authority. So today we focus then on the purpose for which he writes. The purpose for which he writes. And we'll focus on this. Um, we're we're going to consider, first of all, several of the themes I mean, in the commentaries, you can find a dozen themes uh, drawn out from Philippians. We're just going to look at a few of them. 
uh, the primary ones. And then we'll look at several reasons for which Paul is writing, uh, one of which is clear in verse 2. But this is the approach we should always take when we look at God's word. It's, It's once we understand that historical context in which the letter was written, from there we can begin to discover some important implications for our present circumstances. It begins with understanding that original intent, the original meaning. This is the pattern we want to follow whenever we open God's word on our own, certainly as we are um, preparing to teach on God's word. Some would argue that the culture still upholds these kind of values, this objective truth. Um, But it's obvious that we're living in an increasingly postmodern age that has infiltrated the church. So that progressive Christianity oftentimes approaches scripture as if the meaning of a particular text is shaped by the community that happens to be reading it. So it's, it's a, what does this mean to me kind of interpretation. Instead of looking at it from as an objective reality, as, a, as some, some kind of or a truth that stands on its own and then applies in various contexts. There's a a vast difference between those two approaches. So we can certainly point to several variant interpretations of the text as we make our way through Philippians. I'll point to them sometimes along the way, but the Reformers were clear that the true meaning of any scripture is singular. There's not multiple meanings of a text. And this principle is found in Sola Scriptura. It's the, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 9. We read this. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, and then in parentheses, which is not manifold but one, The true and full sense of any scripture is not manifold, but one. It must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So if you ever have a question about one text, look at other passages of scripture. Take in the whole counsel of God's word. Let scripture interpret scripture. Notice what's not involved. The reader's own context and circumstances. That's not involved at this point to determine the meaning of the text. That's not to say you ignore all application and implications of the text. Of course, the singular meaning of the text will have multiple applications. But that's not where we begin to understand what Paul is doing in his word. And the proof text that the authors, the Westminster Divines, point to is 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if you take it upon yourself to interpret this word as the primary starting point, what are you doing? You're removing it from the work of the Spirit. You're placing yourself in God's seat. Secondly, they point to Acts 15, verses 15 through 16. 
And it's really just the first part of this verse where it says, and with, the, with this, the words of the prophets agree. So this is the Jerusalem council. They've gathered together to give a word to the New Testament church. As the church is growing and, and including Jews and Gentiles now, it's expanding. There's a lot of cultural uh, challenges and tension that's involved in this. And they're saying, with this, the prophets agree. With this, the words of the prophets agree. We're not coming up with some new interpretation of the Old Testament here. We're agreeing with what the prophets have said and what they promised would come about. Right? And so this is, this is all emphasizing that there is a singular meaning and a true meaning. Again, that doesn't remove the, the fact that there will be several implications of the text, but the meaning is objective and singular. I can remember, and some of you probably can remember, being in Bible studies, and certainly for me it was in high school, early college years, uh, where we would gather together with friends, and it was like the one question you'd ask, you'd open the Bible, you'd start to read it, and you'd say, now what does this mean to you? Right? That's, that's, that was our approach. It, well, or we would start off, well, I don't know about you, but for me this, this means... That's a faulty approach to God's word. And the Bible is not a subjective document with a meaning that can be molded to suit every different context. I think that's also part of the danger with this language of contextualizing the gospel, right? this contextualization, as if you know, uh, we begin to think the gospel is something that can be redefined and reshaped for every scenario. Now, I know that that's not what everyone means by that language, but I think it tends in that direction. So we have to be careful of that. So why am I belaboring this? We haven't even gotten into the text. and It's because I want you to see how countercultural Christianity is in this present age. Postmodernism, they look at texts, including the word, for the purpose of deconstructing it deconstructing this historical narrative in order to attribute new meaning to it. It's a reader-centric focus. Uh, you see this even just in politics, right, um, or in culture. Consider the 1619 Project at New York Times, uh, which rewrites the history of our nation in order to place slavery at the heart of its founding, as if the pilgrims came to America in order to perpetuate oppression rather than flee it. That's the kind of stuff that's happening in our postmodern world. So we do not approach God's word with that kind of audacity. We come humbly, we come submissively under the authority of God's special revelation. And this means we will find ourselves at odds often with the popular secular agenda. And so this makes it all the more important that we find ourselves aligned and intimately involved in a local community of saints. Last, last week we said isolation and loneliness are bad for our spiritual, physical, and emotional well-being. We emphasize the value and the role of friendship and developing and maintaining those friendships. And we said if friendships are so good, why are we so bad at doing that? Why are we so bad at developing them and maintaining them? 
Why is it that the average American has four friends, two of which are family members, as in your spouse and a child? Immediate family. That's the average. Right? Christianity, our, our friends should be more vast. I'm not saying you should have thousands of friends, and we'll get to friends, so-called, on social media later on. But, but we, we want to bring it back to this idea, our need for that fellowship. Believers experience genuine fellowship because they are united to Christ and mutually committed to his gospel. That's, that's kind of the summary of this greeting here from Philippians. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have condescended to give us your word. You did not have to provide us with your revelation. You've given us the benefit and the privilege of opening your word, studying it together, and seeking the truth that you've revealed, and then applying it to our lives, Lord. And so I pray that you would incline our hearts to your word right now. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. Lord, help us to not be divided and distracted in our minds Lord, help us to be encouraged and edified and equipped from your word. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, as we consider the purpose for which Paul is writing, I'm sorry for the popping, this is a new mic, so I've, I'm, I've got to figure out where to position it, but um, we're, we're considering the purpose, and I do, if you like to take notes, I will have three basic purposes or, or categories for which we'll consider these purposes. And the first one is Paul's thematic purposes, his thematic purposes. And I just want to look at three of them. The first one is the gospel of Christ. First, notice in this introduction, there is three references to Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And then at the end of verse two, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's three references there in two verses. Throughout the letter, there will be 61 references to Christ. 61, it's clearly the primary central theme of this letter. The gospel permeates the letter. It reaches this pinnacle in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which ironically, as we're talking about Christ and his authority, it's exemplified there in his humility. The second theme we want to see is community in Christ. Uh, It uses this language, koinonia, throughout the letter, um, which can be translated as partner or fellowship. You see that that the church was partners in the gospel. They were partners, or they, they enjoyed fellowship in the spirit. And they were also partners in the suffering of Christ. That is what the church community 
enjoys that kind of that kind of unity with Christ brings us unity with one another. Obviously, unity in the gospel, unity by the Spirit, unity in the sufferings of Christ. So the letter of Philippians could be taught as a portrayal of the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about living that Christian life within a community of believers. It's obviously not without its problems. There will be tension and division, but it's so much more gratifying than being alone, being isolated, trying to solve everything on our own. We need one another. We need that community. The third theme, and we've mentioned it already several times, is joy. The word joy and rejoice is found 16 times in Philippians. And that's the the purpose. It's one of the the purposes here of this letter. We'll see it there from verse 2. Um, but this idea of, of joy and rejoicing, or it's, or it's actually related to the, the word grace, and we'll, we'll, I'll make sense of that. So it's not so much that Paul here is writing about, it's as if Philippians could be titled, how to, how to Be a Joyful Christian. He actually doesn't make arguments for that. He assumes that it's as if as he's writing to them, the joy is bubbling out. And joy just constantly comes up as he's reflecting upon Christ, as he's reflecting upon the saints. And so a, a wrong view of the gospel, as the Judaizers were per- perpetuating within the context of the church, and probably there in Philippi, uh, that wrong view of the gospel would greatly endanger the joy that the Philippians were experiencing. So in chapter 3, we'll see Paul take up a very strong response to those who are preaching a different gospel. So again, even, even in these themes, you see they're, they're, they're not distinct themes. They're overlapping one another. The gospel of Christ, the community of the saints, and the joy that we experience. So that, those are some of Paul's thematic purposes. Secondly, we'll look at this opening purpose, verse 2. What is his purpose here in this greeting? The greeting includes a benediction, much like Paul's closing, uh, the, the closing to his letters. He uses the word peace, grace and peace. That peace is shalom. This is the Hebrew greeting. And it was... It was um, Really, just the common greeting you might say as you run into someone, right, is hi and goodbye, what we say today. In fact, goodbye, do you know, is, is really just um, God be with ye. That's where it comes from, God be with ye. And it turned into goodbye. I don't think we oftentimes reflect upon the deeper meaning. It's just become a greeting, right? Certainly most people don't think about that. Well, this is what this greeting of, of peace had become for, for most people. It was just their, their form of greeting. Same thing in the Greek, you had the greeting rejoice. Rejoice. So he takes this word in Greek that was uh, kairain, and he replaces it with charis. So he, he takes the word joy and rejoice, which we'll see later on in, the, in this letter, and he replaces it with a deeper word, charis, which is grace. He's intentionally speaking about the foundation of the joy that he'll be writing about throughout the letter. 
He reminds his Christian readers at the opening of all 13 of his New Testament epistles that they are the recipients of God's grace and peace. That phrase, grace and peace, is in all 13 openings of his letters. So James Boyce writes, Grace is the unmerited and and abounding favor of God toward men, and peace is the result of that favor. So we know Paul wants his readers to rejoice. We've said it already multiple times, but he begins by reminding them of the basis for that rejoicing, the basis for that joy. What makes their joy unshakable is the fact that they have received God's favor, even though they did not deserve it. They were due to receive God's wrath, but instead they received grace. And that grace is exemplified from the very beginning of our encounter with God. No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. John 6, 44. We do not seek after him, but he revealed himself to us. We are only able to love others because God first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. So this is not referring to, um, you know, the, uh, go in, the, in the second word here, so you have grace and, and you have peace. This peace is not referring to the peace that we gain with God through our conversion. Although we ought to regularly reflect upon that grace and it's important to, to do that, that's not what he's referring to. It's not something that, that would need to be routinely commended as a benediction for the saints. What's needed, especially in the midst of a storm, is that inner tranquility that comes from God. This is the peace that Paul speaks of later in Philippians 4, 7, right? He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the peace that he has in mind here. It's the It's the peace that is steadfast, that's guarded. It's the peace that provides that guard to our minds and our hearts, and it surpasses understanding. It's the peace that comes from knowing that God is in control. We're not driven to despair. We're confident that God is working all things for his glory and our good. So the peace that God provides protects us. It becomes that refuge that we sang about earlier, a mighty fortress. Paul's purpose in writing is infused with his desire to see these characteristics flourishing within the context of the Philippian church. Alec Matir explains this purpose well. He says, when Paul wishes these blessings on Christians, he's not desiring their salvation all over again. Though the blessings are those of salvation, he is first assuring them of the unchanged attitude of God. The God who planned and accomplished and freely gave salvation is the same God who, by his unchanged grace, gives his people everything they need. It's just it's grounded in that original work of conversion, but it's an ongoing need that we have. And because we serve and we praise and we love an immutable God, we know that he continues to extend that peace to us. And I think we can easily lose sight of God's attitude toward us. We struggle against sin, but we never struggle alone. 
We fall, but we never fall out of Christ's grip. We experience moments of faithlessness that rock us, that trouble us, where we wrestle and argue with God. But we also know from 2 Timothy 2.13 that when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, I read a quote from this a few um, weeks ago by Dane Ortland. But he reflects on the words of Jesus from John 6.37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And it's a, it's a powerful passage. This is, this is us approaching Jesus. We cautiously approach him. We say, no, wait. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. Well, you know most of it, sure. Certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. Jesus says, I know it all. Well, the thing is, it it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of it anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear, not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're directed toward you. Then I'm the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me that you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me. I will never cast out. It's a great illustration of Christ's steadfast love for you. And so let's wrap this up with some of Paul's practical purpose. And I'm going to be brief here because we're running out of time, but Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the congregation in Philippi. We'll see this in chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. But apparently Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to Paul. They knew he was in prison, and they sent him along with a gift to encourage him. And Epaphroditus, along the way, became sick. And so he remained with Paul for a time. He didn't get sent back as as the Philippian church was expecting him, and so they became worried, obviously. And so he's returning him now, and he's sending along with Epaphroditus a letter of thanksgiving. That's really what this is. It's a a friendship letter of thanks for all that the Philippian church did for Paul. He's also writing to assuage their worries about him, right? He's in prison. 
they're, they're anxious about that. They're worried about what, how he's doing spiritually, emotionally, physically. And so he's writing to let them know he's doing well and that the Lord is using him. And so Paul also defends the Philippians against these attacks from outsiders. I mentioned earlier Judaizers who came in, and we'll explain that when we get to chapter 3. There's also three other kinds of opponents. Some try to combine them all into just one opponent in, in Philippi there that's being addressed, but more than likely it seems more difficult to consolidate them than to just treat them as individual groups or opponents. But in light of the attacks of Paul's opponents, along with some obvious internal strife within the church, we'll see, we'll see him calling them to unity, especially by the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, there's a call to unity, a call for them to humble themselves, to treat others more important than themselves. So this call to unity is what drives Paul's exhortation to the Philippians to be humble and then he points, of course, to Jesus Christ as the example of that humility. So again, this is a letter of friendship and moral exhortation rather than a polemic or an apologetic. He's, he's not uh, writing with a defensive posture. He's writing as one to friends who want to hear from him. And so he's encouraging the saints as family members. Again, while theology is not absent from the letter... Paul doesn't make any lengthy theological arguments to support his point. Now, last week we emphasized the importance of friendship, and I do want to reiterate that as we close this morning. Friendship is, is something that we crave by virtue of being created in the image of God. It is something that we possess by nature. The Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote about friendship in the 4th century B.C., roughly 400 years prior to Paul, he spoke of three types of friendships. One he he called utility. It's a friendship of usefulness. You're working alongside one another. Co-workers would be that kind of friend. Secondly, one of pleasure or play. It's friends like teammates, friends that you play games alongside. And those are, there's potential there to develop friendships in those settings but he he primarily emphasizes the deeper and the truer kind of friendship which is a virtue friendship one that's based upon character we'll see the importance of that in the christian community in chapter 4 verses 8 through 9 where paul exhorts the philippians to think about what is true lovely commendable trustworthy honorable and all of these things are are good characteristics in which we can reflect upon and then begin to reflect to one another. So speaking of the first two types of friendships, the utility and the pleasure, Aristotle writes that friendships of this kind are easily broken off. In the event of parties themselves changing, for if no longer pleasant or useful to each other, they cease to love each other. And so he says you must have the kind of deeper friendships that are based upon character. Roman statesman Cicero wrote about friendship as well in the first century BC. He said, there is no surer bond of friendship than the sympathetic union of thought and inclination. Union of thought and inclination. Secondly, he said, the whole essence of friendship is the most complete agreement in policy, in pursuits, and in opinions. So it's becoming united 
in the way we think. Christian friendship is the deepest of all. And we learn this from scripture, right? It's transformed from a two-way to a three-way bond by our union with Christ. So the relationship between Paul and the Philippians throughout the letter, it's defined as one of affection. Paul shows his great love for the Philippians. It's defined by partnership or fellowship, as I've already said, koinonia. Even Aristotle said all friendship involves koinonia. And so apparently Paul agrees with that assessment, but he deepens it by uniting it to Christ. And then there's giving and receiving in this kind of friendship. And it's one that involves a vulnerability so that you can receive help when it's needed and that you have the ability to give to others the help they need. And then lastly, there's common struggles and joys in Christ. And we see many martyrs have found solace in the theme of suffering for Christ that's found here in Philippians can even point to examples in research here. Um, There's a study called the Framingham Heart Study, which revealed interesting findings related to friendship, where if if someone becomes obese, the odds increase by 71% that that same-sex friends will do likewise. Secondly, if you become happy, a friend living within a mile has a 25% greater chance of becoming happy. And even a friend of a friend has a 10% greater chance. On the flip side, misery does not seem to be as contagious. So it's interesting. We see this connection, this need for friendship that has benefits in reality. Bobbing said the goal of friendship is not effort, but relaxation. An exercise of love and enjoyment it's important to th- recognize that that's, he's not saying that there is no work involved in friendship, but that that's not the purpose of friendship, that you would always be striving to maintain it. No, true friendship develops to such a, way, to such a degree that we relax when we're around one another. We let our guard down. We enjoy being with one another. It's not a chore that we have to check out. Oh, I got to go see that person again because I got to maintain this relationship. It's not a duty, right? It's an enjoyment for us. It's therefore particularly important, Bavink says, at a young age when we're still being formed. Everyone sees that. The, The people you surround yourself with influence the way you live. So in later life, he mentions maintaining friendships rather than establishing them. Among pagans, friendship is manifested particularly in hospitality toward guests. So we see this role of friendship, and it's the opposite oftentimes among friends today. Right? Facebook has butchered the word friend for the 21st century. Social media cannot satisfy your need for connection. Uh, we, we won't go into all the manipulation and algorithms that are highly addictive, that are surely lining their own pockets in the name of developing friends for you. Instead, it just encourages narcissistic behavior, replaces genuine friendship with a superficiality. 
the Christian community is far superior. We will find it to be crucial to survive the onslaught of cultural and political persecution that is sure to come our way in the next few years and beyond. Expect it, prepare for it. And the way you do that is by aligning yourself with a community of saints that can strengthen you. Right? Christian community is stunted because we begin to do things in our own strength rather than relying upon the grace and peace that God has supplied. We must stop relying upon our own inadequate strength to avoid conflict and trust in the Spirit's guidance and provision. We know that the Lord has empowered you by his grace and enabled you to utilize your time in a selfless way to serve others. And that might require a radical mind shift for you. But receiving the grace of God and enjoying the peace of God motivates us to adopt that radically new mindset, which Paul will describe in chapter 4. And he knows how important it is for our thoughts to be rightly ordered. And when that's the case, we begin to think like John, who said, he must increase and I must decrease. We're humbled by these truths. So grace and peace are specific blessings addressed to the church. And these are the means by which God sets us apart from the world as saints. Do you recognize that you possess these gifts? Are you resting in the grace and peace that God has supplied to you through his son? You need to hear that truth, not just weekly. You need to hear it daily. It's not the sound of a broken record, but the loving refrain of a persistent Savior who is committed to your perseverance. And so hear him afresh this morning. Receive his benediction of grace and peace again and again and again. Rest in that. May the Lord fill our greetings, even our simple, basic hello and goodbye, with that genuine interest and affection that we see reflected here in Philippians. May Grace Presbyterian Church be known for our love for one another because we're leaning or we're learning to rest in the love of our Savior. That only takes place where relationships are established on mutual commitments to the gospel. And so Jesus Christ has not merely modeled Christian service. He's promised to enable it by his spirit. And so the grace we receive in Christ results in the peace that we enjoy through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for this reminder. And we thank you for this letter. We need to hear it. We need to consider its implications for us today. But as we read through it, help us to understand that original purpose, that meaning that is meant by your spirit. We wrestle with the context in which Paul's writing from and the people to whom he's writing and see how it relates, how it parallels 
with our circumstances. Lord, we begin with your word, but your word is always relevant to us, your saints. You use your word to equip us, to sharpen us. And so as we sit under your word in this series, in this letter, Lord, we pray that you would give us a greater affection for one another because of our love for you. May Christ do that work in our hearts for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is in Christ alone, hymn number 265.